it's 1%, that's the specific one that you are looking at is among the 1% best rated wine for that particular category, which is, for example, Napa Valley Cab and at a specific price point. You're listening to The Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Vint Podcast. I'm here with Billy, who rarely spends time in the United States anymore. He's been in Canada and Mexico most recently. Yep, How you doing? I'm, I'm our latest ambassador for NAFTA or whatever <laughs> Trump replaced it with. I'm just making sure the North American trade agreements are all in place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the wine in Napa versus the wine in Canada. What's the main comparison if we had to put them on a Venn diagram? The the main comparison? Are you talking about the most similar? Differences. I mean, differences, yeah. Now, I would say wine in Napa. Everybody knows what Napa is known for. Like riper, fruit forward. Rich Cabernets, I guess. Cabernet Sauvignon. And, no, and can- Canada, Canada and Mexico. Oh, you said California. You said Napa. No, no, Canada. Oh, did I really? Canada yeah. and Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's a weird question. Okay. Yeah, Cabernet um, is from Napa. <laughs> <laughs> Learning a lot on the Vint Podcast. Tune in each week. Yeah, there we go. Canada and Mexico couldn't be more different. Canada has a lot of cool climate, cooler grapes. Mexico is really unique, at least the Valle de Guadalupe, where I was, because they, they grow a lot of red grapes. It's really hot. It's a borderline desert. It's, I always describe it must have been what like Los Angeles was 120 years ago. But what's interesting there is there aren't any set hard and fast rules. I guess Canada follows a little bit of a European tradition just because of its influence, whereas Mexico, the grapes that are grown there, number one, when they're imported, people might have gotten the grapes wrong anyway, so some are called mm-hmm. one thing and maybe another. The other is just there's just blends that are all over the place. So you'll have like Cabernet Syrah blend, Cabernet Tempranillo blend. And it's really people just trying to find, because vines have been grown there for hundreds of years. There's a bunch of actual old vines from the mid 1900s. So what they've done now is the quality of the wine was really recognized more in like the 80s and 90s. And then a lot of winemakers, both from Europe and the US kind of came down and helped them polish a little bit more what they're doing and more infrastructure has been built up. So it's been really cool. There's a lot of really unique red blends, some cool white wines as well. There's a unique salinity in the soil that kind of makes everything distinctly Valle. And sometimes it works out really well, sometimes it doesn't, but they're still working to find out the essence of Valle in the wines, which is it's really it's cool to good. see. It's kind of happening in real time. Yeah, what's the coastal influence there, like just from really long time ago, or do you still get some of that? What's it like? Like coastal as in the weather-wise? Yeah, yeah. Because you said it's desert mainly, but it's, you know, how cold, do the, I guess the nights get really cold, and do you get some of that wind? Yeah, it's deserty and like scrub brushy and fairly dry and dusty. But again, it's like Los Angeles or even by Paso, there is, it's a little more than that. But you get cool winds and rains from... It's only like, how many kilometers did it say? Like, it's not that far from Ensenada, which is right by the coast. So basically, you're getting a similar influence like Santa Barbara, where it's not like completely transverse, but cool and maritime air comes in. It rains during the winter. So that's why it's dry and dusty a little bit in the summertime. But they get enough. I would say it's Mediterranean more than just yeah. desert, but definitely dry. And using You have to use water well. But like one of my favorite producers, Mina Penelope, 
and I mainly like them. I've had their wines over the years, but it's basically this lady who was born in the area, went to Australia to learn, like polish her winemaking chops, has come back. She married a guy whose family has grown grapes there for years, but he had been in the U.S. and he came back now and they're working like bio or organically and mm-hmm. she's making really interesting wines and they dry farm. So it's possible to dry yeah. farm as well, yeah. but there's a lot of old school winemakers who are still doing things conventionally and irrigate the crap out of everything and take all the cover crops off. And so sure. they're still learning. Sure. Yeah. Cool. Wine destinations for our listeners to to go and visit. Certainly a lot going on. We, the today's episode, apart from recapping travels, we have a lot to review in terms of what's been happening on the Vint platform. Um, as of this recording, we've released and sold out five new collections, actually. And announcing and soon to be releasing on Thursday, we'll release this podcast on Wednesday and the new collection will go live on Thursday will be our sixth offering since last week. So we've had two whiskey collections, Balmore and a Macallan offering, and then three wine collections, Domaine de la Romney Conti, Rousseau, and Cristal Champagne. So it's been certainly getting back on the horse and going quickly with this batch. And we have had a ton of demand on the platform since It's been a little bit since we've launched some collections, which we've talked about on the podcast a little bit. So certainly these offerings aren't quite meeting the demand that we're seeing right now, but that's definitely going to change as we have plenty more collections in the pipeline that will be coming over the next several weeks. And then as we move throughout the year, we'll get back on track in terms of one to three collections launching each week. And our investors will be able to get plenty of wine here through the end of this quarter. Yeah. The... Oh, sorry. I was just gonna. I was gonna go on and talk a little bit about the collection that we have upcoming. I was just gonna intro it. Maybe you can talk about it. We have our, yeah, we have our Tuscan Legends collection, which is one of our first Italian offerings that we've had. Not our first, but it's been a while since we we've had an Italian wine collection since I believe our Piemonte collection, early ish last year. Is that right? Probably about this time. No, actually. we've we've had a Brunello. Well, we've had a Brunello collection like since. Before. Two Italian yeah. collections. We've had three total, I think. We've had the Super Tuscan, was like our very, mm-hmm. our third ever collection. And then we had our Piemonte. That's right, Brunello, 43,000. That's right. And we had our Brunello. Yeah. Don't worry, Brady. This is, my job is more to keep track of the wines. Yours is to keep <laughs> track of the people who <laughs> invest in the wines. We're at a good place now because I remember when it was a 10 collections and <laughs> you could list them off really easily. Yeah. We've progressed and you no know, like working with Adam and also we have a we've installed a bunch of inventory management things over the past months and in hmm. quarters. So I've been intimately involved in in moving our specific wines from place to place on data sheets. So if you have any questions let me know. <laughs> <laughs> you want to tell the folks about this upcoming one? Yeah, and I wanted to like highlight again. I guess looking back is nice because our first Italian collection were Super Tuscans, and this kind of brings us full circle back to the Super Tuscans again. So it features producers like Sassicaia, Massetto, Salaya, Tignello, and Ornelia. Some of the big names, basically, as the collection name is Tuscan Legends. It's basically the big names that are Super Tuscans in the space. We they've. They always offer amazing value compared to certain regions that maybe have been more established over many years. And by value, I mean that that quality of score to $2 ratio, but just like that available entry price point. So mm-hmm. as people have discovered that over the past 20, 30 years, they've really been gaining traction as a, an investment category. And Tuscany, along with Piemonte, have become the top two superstars in the country. 
Yeah. You want to just briefly on what super Tuscans are, what that means? Yeah. So originally there were a couple of EOCs and DOCGs in, well, I guess DOCs in general, in the middle of Italy where Tuscany is. So there's Chianti, which now has Chianti and Chianti Classico, and a few other really broad areas that were basically governed on what the wine you could make. So the DOC is a the one of their regional areas of control. I can't remember the exact Italian, I think it's... Um, yeah, I can't remember the exact time. But moral of the story is it was pretty restrictive on what grapes could go into each wine. So you would basically say it had to be at least 85% Sangiovese and it could have 15% of these white grapes that would be blended in. And that's just traditionally how the wine had been made for centuries, basically. And it was these field blends that they would just harvest and they just codified it. And in the early 60s, they really came to more the prominence. People had been messing around before, but they became commercially available in the 60s that people decided to start making wines, one, either from 100% Sangiovese, which technically was outside of the rules. And then the more common Super Tuscans are the Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, a bunch of kind of French grapes or what they call international varieties being grown in the area. So they've started blending Mm -hmm. those with Sangiovese or making just pure Cabernet or Merlot blends, not many pure Cabernet, but really blending in these different varieties. And that's why Americans actually gave them the name Super Tuscans and it stuck. And since they were only originally commercially released in the 60s, they've been continually gaining traction throughout the decades. And they've become kind of a global favorite and collectors now are being able to see how they perform with 30 40 50 years of age on them and they're holding up really well to the stands of time so they're really again gaining more momentum in the collector sphere yeah yeah a lot of opportunities in this batch of offerings for folks to get involved across a diverse number of regions so this is a great time to be starting your investment with vin even though collections are selling out very quickly we certainly have a broad diversity of wines coming up and also whiskeys actually and whiskeys in different formats from different producers as well a lot of fun reach out to billy or i if you like any more information on our upcoming offerings but of course we'll be announcing them via email if you've signed up on the platform yeah we'd love to chat with you either way maybe moving into our interview we've been going for a little bit now we have a company that maybe folks on our podcast are familiar with Pretty big wine in the space, maybe the most popular wine app in the U.S. Vivino, we have Boris Guillaume, who is the senior manager, head of wine sourcing for U.S. and Canada at Vivino. Vivino, a wine maybe indexing app like Yelp for wine, where folks can upload photos of their bottle that they've recently consumed, provide reviews and feedback on the wine. And you can also walk into a wine shop or pick up any wine that you have in your house, scan the label. And we'll search the index and show you those reviews if you're trying to figure out what you're drinking. So Boris is the director of wine sourcing. And so he's bringing in the wines that Vivino sells on the marketplace side of their platform. So it's not only a great place to learn about wine and learn about the wines that you're drinking, especially when you're in the shop, but also a place to purchase wines. Yeah. And that was something I didn't, I'd known that Vivino was buying wines and offering them through their platform. And they have a network mm-hmm. of retailers that offer that, but they're also working directly with producers and importing as well. And yep. Boris, I think it might be, cause I think he's French, but Guillaume. either way, he, Brady's pronunciation is always spot on, but he used to be <laughs> literally his title was director of like winery relations. So he's, he has really deep ties to producers. So it's really interesting to hear that side. Cause most people really only know Vivino as a rating app, which is something I certainly used it for many years. Um, 
And what's fun about the rating side of things too, though, we did get to ask him some questions. There is some global rankings that I've never really understood how they were created. He was able to shed light on that too. So really interesting interview. Yeah, it's a great app for folks, whether you're just getting into wine and want to learn about what you're drinking night to night, or have been into it for a while and want to have a place maybe to catalog what you're drinking, what you think of it. It's definitely an awesome spot. And Vint, actually, we use it to send wine to some of our clients and friends and folks on the podcast we've sent wine to before. So it's a product that we use as well. So here's our interview with Boris. Hope you enjoy. Hey, Boris, thanks for joining us today. Really excited to have you on the podcast. Good morning, gentlemen. The, uh, the sun is shining for you as it is Billy all the time in California. You're based in Napa, right? So you said? Uh, yes, correct. You're lucky because obviously we've been having a lot of rain over the past two weeks, two or three weeks yeah. actually. But today I'm in my sunroom overlooking actually vineyards over there. And it is definitely <laughs> a nice day. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, we've done a little bit of an introduction on your role at Vivino and some of your maybe past in wine. But could you go a little bit deeper into how you got into the space and how ultimately you ended up at Vivino? Yeah, definitely. Obviously, I, as you can notice, I've got a, a slight French accent and I was born in the Loire <laughs> Valley. I first came in, in the U.S. in 1995, so quite a while ago too. I got a scholarship to come and, uh, and study and I stayed and having a French accent and I went to Spokane, Washington, if you guys are familiar with where that is on the eastern side of the state. With a French accent, you sounds very exotic very quickly. And I work as a waiter and I was interested to pursuing my one education after doing a business degree. And I did the WACT program. And shortly after I graduated, <coughs> sorry, I, I got offered a position to run a wine shop from a local venture over there. I was 24 and I was like, hey, why not? So that's Literally was my first intro into the wine world, aside from being a sommelier at the restaurant. And I work in many different aspects of the wine business. I work as a seller master for a full year because I want to understand the process of making wine. And I moved to California in 2002 to work for a Grand Award restaurant called Restaurant 301. And I moved in Napa, which is where I'm located in 2004. So just shy of 20 years ago. And I initially, I was the, the wine director for Dina De Luca. And I've obviously worked in different parts of the valley, being in the wine business, selling wine mostly to an emerging market for about 10 years after that. And I've joined Vivino just about six years ago. And as their wine sourcing specialist, then I can explain a bit more about what that means. And it yeah. has definitely been a, a wild ride going to, to work for a startup and a lot of, a lot of challenges and a lot of reward knowing where we were when I first joined versus where we are today. How long has yeah, the product? Good, Billy. Ready. I was just going to say, I'll how say long has the... Vino been existing? <laughs> yeah, sorry. So Vivino's been in business for, okay, I think it's about 11 years. And if you think about it, 11 years ago, I was the still the start of the smartphone device. And we were one of the first wine app in Apple and such. And we went from this idea, which is the founders behind Vivino are, were born in Copenhagen, Denmark. And they don't necessarily have any wine background. Actually, they have no wine background, but they 
one day they were facing a wall of wine at a local grocery store and they say, hey, we can't cool to know what people are thinking as opposed to just picking up a wine based on the packaging. And that was the idea of, of you know, and be able to take a snapshot of any wine label and see what the consumers would think based on a five-star rating. And we went from obviously zero to where we are today. And we have, again, it's growing every single month. But I think last time I checked, we have about 75 million people using the apps throughout the with another half a million people downloading the apps every single month, which actually, if you think about it, if you have an app that's 10 years old and you still have about half a million people joining every month, that's me at you obviously doing something right. And to give you guys an idea of what it means in terms of uh, scans, so we have about 2 million scans each and every day. So that's about wow. 20 to 25 scans every second throughout the world. So we have a lot of people using the app. Most people use the app to obviously get an idea of what their peers is thinking about a specific wine. And some of the people use the app to buy wine, which is obviously where I jump in is in terms of what I do for Vivino. Wow. Yeah, the I think that I found the most use early on, especially in understanding more about producers when I see a label that I, I don't know. Also knowing what grape varieties are in a specific wine, even sometimes now, if I'm not really sure what it is I'm looking at and the label isn't clear, it's really helpful to go on and be able to get some of that information as well, along with reviews and pricing and other things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely something that's been, a, in my opinion, a must need in terms of the consumer reviews and, and, and know what people think as opposed to just relying on the traditional critics, such as Robert Parker, James Suckling, Wine Spectator, and so on. And again, the idea is to help people to drink the right wines every single time by giving them a ratings based on what other people are thinking of the wines and trying to also match the wine that they're seeing on Vivino based on what they scan. The more active you are on Vivino and the better the formula is for us to showcase some wines, which we know you're interested to that particular category. Yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting because the app has evolved. I've actually been using it for maybe eight, eight years or so now. I was introduced by a friend of mine back in the day, and she would really just look at the very bottom there where you have the regional kind of percentages. What is this top 1% in France, <laughs> 1% in Bordeaux? So that was kind of interesting that she would basically just pick a wine just on that, not even the stars. Could you elaborate a little bit more on like how the team determined to use a five-star rating rather than the 100 points and also what those percentiles mean? Because I still don't know to this day, but I still reference it occasionally. <laughs> Yeah, again, from the beginning, the idea behind Vivino was to go to use a five-star rating, kind of very similar to what you may found in like Yelp, for example, for reviews, as opposed to a 100-point scale. Again, the every single every single time that you raise a wine, it becomes the average for that particular wine, for that particular vintage, knowing that every single wine has a specific rating for each and every vintage. So, for example, you may be looking at a particular Napa Cabernet Sauvignon. That's a 4.3 over all the vintages with, let's say, two or 3,000 ratings. And then you start to dig into each and every specific vintage. And you're going to see maybe it's a 4.2 for the 2018 and it's a 4.4 for the 2019 and so on. So it's dialed into each and every vintage. It's 
real time, meaning that the rating change all the time. Obviously, the more ratings you have, the least impact you have in terms of change, but you have that option. If you look at a 100-point scale, typical review made by someone that's obviously very seasoned, very knowledgeable about wine, that's great. But then again, it's one it's a one review at one specific time of one wine, as opposed to when you look at the ratings on Vivino, it is the it is what everybody think combined at that very moment. Yeah, I'd never thought of that, actually. The fact that a reviewer tastes maybe the wine one time, often when it's very young, even with some yeah. of these. And then on Vivino, you get someone might taste a 2019 seven years from now and add their review, and you start to get a true aggregate. Yeah, and again, I've, again I'm... I have nothing against the 100 points. I've been in business for 25 years and I've used it a lot to, to market wines myself. And it's still very much the, the go-to course for collectibles, for sure. But as you said, Brady, you're looking at one given time and like a wine that sets a 96 point today, will that one still get 96 point a year from now? And it's not like the wines are being reviewed every single year to give you an update of what's the... What's how the wines change? So, what does the regional percentile piece mean at the bottom? Is that where based on ratings on the Vivino app altogether? Oh, you mean oh, you mean like the one percent? Yeah, like the top one percent so of wines in the world. Yeah, yeah. So it means that like it's one percent, two percent, five percent, ten percent. It means that, for example, if it's one percent, that's the specific one that you are looking at is among the one percent best rated wine for that particular category, which is, for example, Napa Valley Cab and at a specific price point. Ah, so it's within price point Mm -hmm. and region. It is a combination of of the price point and the category, meaning the the wine region or the specific like Napa Cabernet Sauvignon, Brunello. And yeah, so it's like the top of the top. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. That's awesome. And one one thing as well that we, because since you joined eight years ago, and I'm not sure how active you are on Vivino, but aside from that percentage, we also have introduced, I think about a year and a half ago or two years, a percentage of, if you scan anyone's on Vivino, not only is it going to give you the ratings, but it's also going to give you a percentage of how well that wine matches with your own specific profile. So for example, you're going to see a wine being a, 89% match for you. And that means that's, there's 89% chance that this is definitely something that you will enjoy. So it's something that's also people have been enjoying. Awesome. Yeah, on, are, on that front, oh, sorry, Brady, I think we have a little bit of a lag. Surprise. I have one more quick question there. So you were saying based on price point as well, I think it's interesting as you guys have transitioned more to being not just a ratings app, but an app where you can also buy wines either directly through Vivino or being connected through it to another. And I think that obviously dives into what you do. Can you talk about how Vivino's kind of transitioned more towards allowing yes. people to buy wine and what you do? Yes. That's funny because every single day when I say, Hey, I work for Vivino people, are, Hey, we love the app. We use it all the time, blah, blah, blah. And when they say, so what do you do? I'm like, we're well, actually sourcing wine for our users. And they say, wait, what you guys sell wines on? I'm always surprised of how many, People are using the app, yet don't always understand that we actually have the option to purchase wines on Vino, knowing that it is 
when you look at the revenue, it is by far one of the very top e-commerce business in the country in terms of sales. We do a huge amount of sales. Again, when you have a huge pool of users, that's definitely a plus. We have different channels on how we, uh, we sell wines on Vino. So the traditional channel is you're going to scan a wine and pending wine is available through one of our partnering merchants. One is hundreds of different merchants throughout the country that sign up to have their wine portfolio live on Vino. Then you have the option to purchase it from one of these vendors. And it's all—it's always going to match you with the best price and the closest to, you, to where you are as well. So you're not buying, if you are like me based in California, you're not going to be buying it from someone in, in New York where the wine is going to be traveling throughout the entire country. So that's what we call the organic sales, meaning that people go scan and they purchase wine. And then we have the what we call the push notification program where we select particular wines that we promote on a daily basis to uh, specific users. And obviously that's what I'm involved with myself, selecting these wines, negotiating the pricing with the suppliers, whether it's the winery direct, which is often the case, whether it's even direct imports because we import a lot of wines from Europe, which are not in the U.S. market, or sometimes it's through Russian as well. And these particular wines are sent to you based on a few things. Number one, they're always going to have a superior rating, meaning that it's often like a 4.2, 4.3, 4.4, which is obviously on the top of the top. And they're almost always going to show a value proposition, meaning there's going to be a discount built into the offer. And the idea is obviously to give people an incentive to purchase the wine at that given time. And you can look at somewhere between 30 to 50, sometimes even 60% off. And, and they're time sensitive, obviously. So it's a very typical flash sales model. And that's obviously a big chunk of, of the sales that we do through Vivino. Are there some maybe particular challenges with sourcing wine? I'm yeah. sure there are challenges at sourcing wine at that volume, but also yeah. within that model, what are the particular challenges so, um, that so you run? Into? It is definitely a challenge because you are now buying wine in volume. So number one, you have to make sure there's enough volume to support the campaign, the sales. And then you're, as I said, you have to build a pretty significant discount in order to create some reason for people to, to buy the wine. So that means that you have to negotiate the price and the cost accordingly. And we are obviously, one of the challenges always to, to come to an agreement with the winery as far as like, how do we find the right metrics to for price to be appealing for consumers? And that still makes sense for the wineries to, to offer, you know. And the one thing that's always interesting because the one question that sometimes people have is, hey, are you having challenges finding wineries that want to contribute to the program? As I mentioned, I'm based in Napa Valley, so that's by far number one region in terms of sales. And we've done deals with literally hundreds, hundreds of wineries here. There's 90% of the wineries in Napa since I've been here, so six years ago, we've done some sort of deals. Wow. And the reason why is with the exception of probably five to 10 wineries, like the screaming eagle of the world, everybody else is competing for a place at the dinner table. 
And there are an amazing amount of great wines produced throughout the world. But then again, you still have to compete and you still have to earn the trust of the customers. And the best way to earn it is to say, hey, here's a price you cannot refuse to try my wine and see if you like it. Are you seeing a lot of wineries using it as a channel to be introduced to the market or new markets? Are you seeing more for market or brands that maybe have had some slowing down of sales and trying to revamp and reach new consumers? Both. To be honest with you, there's always going to be wineries which have a excess of stock that they need to, to move because either it's like, hey, we're getting close to bottling season or other season and we have some bills and now we have probably twice as much stock that we want to and therefore let's do let's do a, a deal together and then there's some wineries that obviously want to to just get the marketing aspect we've helped some wineries. actually like a perfect example i can give you three years ago we had a that's reached out to us and say hey i'm representing a singer and is launching a rosé and we love to be able to use vivino because the thing with vivino is like whether you are here in Napa Valley, in New York City, or in Wichita, Kansas, no matter where you are, you're going to have the marketing uh, voice the same way. We ship once throughout the entire country. So it's a very quick and efficient way to spread out the world to the right consumer as well. So that particular gentleman reached out to us and said, hey, so will you be interested in doing a combined Vivino and him doing like an Instagram post, say, hey, buy my wines on Vivino. And we did, and we sold, I think we sold somewhere like around 50,000 bottles in 24 hours of that particular wine. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And we've had some other example of some wineries that are launching extension brands, meaning that they have a new product and they've used our services to introduce the wine to the market and see how it does. Yeah, because it sounds like so much of your job is negotiating pricing and understanding consumer consumer behavior around the pricing of some of these wines. What would you tell the average consumer? How would you help the average consumer navigate what price point to enter the wine market? Obviously, it's going to be different for everyone because we have different budgets, but what's the relationship to price and quality So, in your mind? For, for us, it's obviously the, we see a lot of the sales being between 20 to $50. That's the sweet spot for, for what we do. And again, as you said, the price, it's a very personal matter for some people you know $20 is a lot of money and for some people $50 is nothing but we see a direct correlation between the price that we promote the wine for and the actual Vivino rating so I know for a fact mm -hmm. that for example again using Napa Cabernet because that's the most active category for us if I'm selling a Napa Cabernet for more than $35 for example if it's not like a 4.3 or better, that's going to be probably a slow sell for us. As opposed to if it's a 4.4, 4.5, then it's going to be like flying off the shelf, so to speak. Yeah. And that's, that's funny because and it's not so much that we are trying to, of course, we want to advocate what we're doing, but we, when we first started to promote the wines, obviously we were saying, hey, that's a... 4.3 Prunello, what this, and 95 point from the Wine Spectator or Champs setting. So we were combining both to give a sense of a voice that will resonate with the most. 
And what we've noticed by doing hundreds of different offers is the core people that are using Vivino to buy wines are a lot more sensitive to the rating on Vivino versus the point. And there's some instances, like, for example, I remember about a year ago, I purchased a wine from Chile, 95 point from a very famous press. And we were going to offer that for about $16 per bottle, which I was like, that's going to that's gonna fly, no question. For, and it was on, only, so to speak, 3.7 stars out of five. I was like, yeah, but that's going to be okay because the 95 points going to definitely, the 95 point plus the $16 promo price is going to allow for the wine to just do really well. And it took us over a year to sell that particular wine. Nobody was buying it as opposed to the same wine with no press, but like a 4.2, 4.3, we'll sell out in one day. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have the rating skill? I think that's really interesting because what does it matter what country you're in do you get a different rating for each wine because the american palate so different than i the know that's palette. that's yeah. that's interesting because the ratings is global no matter where you are as soon as you start to rate a particular one then your rating becomes part of the average whether you are here based in california or if you are in europe or anywhere in the world actually so it's, it is definitely a global global rating, yeah. And it, it's, it does play a little bit of, it, of an impact on the overall rating because I've noticed that, um, especially like being French myself, I see sometimes some of the ratings in France are slightly lower than the ratings in the US, even though people say, hey, amazing one, I love it, 3.5. As opposed to some, someone here may say, hey, the one is pretty good, 4.0. So it's a very interesting how that works. And the best way I can describe it is in France, when you like something, you don't say, oh, that's good. You say, oh, that's not bad. C'est pas mal. So that's, I think it's, the, <laughs> it's where the culture plays part into the overall rating. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah, I find myself that, especially, for instance, if it's a Napa cab with a lot of ratings and it's at 4.4, which is a really it seems like difficult threshold for the wine to get above yeah. if it has a lot of ratings. If it's yeah. at 4.4, I imagine that it's very much an, a wine that maybe is appealing to like American palate. Whereas if it gets into 4.7 or 4.8, you really start to think of it as obviously incredibly exceptional. Or if yeah. it's a 4.0 from a good producer, that also makes me think that it's probably maybe maybe more complex or appealing to maybe more of a European palate or something like that in different ways. That's obviously generalizations, but that's how I began to yeah. relate to some of those scores. Yeah, you're right. Obviously, we uh, the culture of the American palate versus someone in, from Italy or from France or Spain is going to be a little bit different, correct? Yes. And, uh, but that's the same when you look at, in my opinion, when you look at the regular press, that tends to favor the 96 200 point Napa cabs. And keep in mind that I test hundreds of wines, if not thousands of wines every single year. And I've done that for now 20 years in Napa. So I've had a chance to try a lot of wines. And I noticed that often the big score wines are the one with a big slap on your face that they're really like, oh, wow, that's big. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. I think the trend luckily is going away from pure concentration and body to balance which is nice yeah. um, at least in the macro score but i was going to ask when you, speaking of different countries i know you had mentioned that you were looking to or at least in the last year you had the necessity to bring in more international wines to the u.s market how do you go about 
sourcing wines from different countries that you think might appeal here and then vice versa, bringing wines elsewhere. Yeah, so actually the good thing about Vivino, as I say, it's a global company. We have someone doing my job in France, in Spain, in Italy. So first of all, I have this track record of which particular French wines are doing well in Europe or Italian wines. So that's given me a pool of wine that I can acquire myself for the U.S. market. And then obviously I have my own network of wineries that I've either met a long time ago. Some of them I may have met at some wine fair, like I'm going to Paris next month for Vinexpo Paris, going to Provine, which is the biggest fair in the world in March. The idea is to for me to use Vivino to find wines with superior ratings, which may not be highly exposed to the U.S. market, and to just bring them and offer that kind of sense of exclusiveness to our customers. You know, And we, as you mentioned, Billy, we historically, we've, we were doing a lot more domestic wines than imports in terms of sales, especially on the offers program. And we've seen that trend changing over the past year. And the reason why, as you guys know, we've been experiencing a lot of fire seasons in, in Napa Valley. The worst of the worst was 2020, which many wineries did not produce anyone in 2020 as a reason of the fire. And even though there's a lot of winery that I've worked with for six years and every year we redo their offer, there's some winery that say, hey, sorry, but we don't have we don't have any 2020 vintage. We're afraid of running out. Therefore, we don't know if we want to be able to, to sell any volume to you guys for 2022, which was last year. And I knew that right off the bat, like literally a year ago, like in January, February, I knew that I was going to be short in terms of my uh, supplies for domestic wines. So what I did, I started to push more the imports and trying to match the profiles. For example, someone that's drink a lot of ripe, very fleshy Napa cabs. I'm like, hey, why don't we try to introduce them to some Marone from Italy? Because this is, even though the wines are very different, I think people are going to have that same profile. So we've done a lot more imports last year. Literally, we doubled our imports program in 2022. And it's funny because when I talk to the wineries, I look at the long-term situation and I say, hey, just be careful because if you don't give us any wine this year, it's not a big deal. But I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to hold a space for you for your wine next year because if we get some imports that actually are going to be performing well, I might be more inclined to redo the imports versus re-going back to, uh, to your winery. And that's literally what I've seen over the past two or three months, I've seen a lot more wineries coming back to me say, hey, we're ready to participate again. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. But unfortunately, I don't have as much spots for domestic wines as I used to have a year and a half ago. Yeah, it's really funny you mentioned Amarone. I was actually just chatting with a, a member of our investor community yesterday who's also mm-hmm. listening to the podcast, so he'll recognize this, but he's a Vivino user, but he just discovered Valpolicello Repasso wines. And yes. he was saying... He's a big Napa fan, and he was saying how that was a great parallel, a great value. And he's like, I'm so surprised I had never heard of this before. I think there's a lot of those types of regions that is, even in the European market, maybe like Great Britain, who have a predisposed kind of opinion on, say, Valpolicella. When you bring them to America, so many people are not exposed to Valpolicella baseline, much less all of the different styles, Amarone or Rapasso. So I think that's a really interesting way to not only educate, but provide value. Yeah. And the one thing that I found to be a huge plus for for the U.S. market is 
Americans as a whole are a lot more prone to explore new wines, new regions than I've seen in Europe. I grew up in France where you only drink, not, you don't just drink French wines, you actually drink either Bordeaux because your dad drink Bordeaux or you drink Burgundy because your dad drink Burgundy and you almost don't even cross in between the two main regions, you know. And uh, again, here I think that people are a lot more welcoming to new style, new regions. And as you said, the goal for us is to help to increase. We've done extremely well over the past two years with Portuguese wines, which in my opinion, and I'm not talking of obviously port like the desert or sweet wine. I'm talking of like non-sweet, regular red and whites. And the wines are just doing incredibly well. Like we bring the wines. They are usually pretty, I wouldn't say inexpensive, but they are in the lower tier of our pricing. And people love them. You get a lot of 4.3, 4.4. And yeah, so that's definitely been a trend for us. And I think that's going to only increase with inflation. And people always say, hey, are you worried about the economy and inflation and the impact? And like, yes, guess what? If anything, people drink more during a hard time. But in the same time, they do lower their pricing in terms of their average ticket. So yes, people who drink wine into the 30, maybe more moving to, into 20 to 25 and et cetera, et cetera. But, and the one thing is what we do, as I said, the toughest part for me is to negotiate the price because then I don't need to tell you the wine is great. You can just look at the Vivino ratings. And if you see $20 uh, Portuguese red with a 4.4 and 250 ratings, that's pretty spectacular anyway. Yeah, we've talked obviously a lot about your main focus in the business, which is this probably category below $55. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Um, it but, is. I always say $18 to $40 is definitely okay. more. We have wines for lower and we want to actually further increase our low tier pricing because that's still what people are the most when they go to a grocery store. The one thing that's a bit of a challenge for us is we cover shipping for the orders as long as you buy six bottles and you can mix and match. Okay. Right any wines you want. So for example, you can buy a one bottle at $50 and five bottles at $10 and you still get shipping covered. Mm -hmm. That's a nationwide shipping. And we, on average, we ship between the time that you place the order to the time you get your wine. It's about two or three days. So it's a very fast shipping process, but the cost is pretty substantial, especially when you start to look at one that you sell for under $15. My cost of shipping is often higher than the cost of the wine itself. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to try and pivot a little bit, maybe towards your perspective on how the business handles partners who sell higher end wines as well. Mm -hmm. Like I'm looking here is a a bottle of what vintage is a 2016 Lafitte and looks like there are multiple three different merchants at very different price points that have it available here that you can buy through Vivino. What I'm just curious, the juxtaposition between maybe that side of the business and selling eight, nine hundred thousand dollar plus bottles versus the side that you're right. primarily yeah. focused on at yeah. 40. So the, the funny thing about what we do, as I say, when we do offers, they are very much catered to your particular profile. And again, I think we have about a, I think on average, a 40% open rates on the offers we send, which is huge when you think that we send millions of offers every month and it's going to be anywhere from as i said like not i wouldn't say ten dollars because that's almost impossible for us but let's say 12 to 15 dollars entry level 
European wines, all the way to Chateau Lafitte, all the first growers from Bordeaux, Screaming Eagle, we sell Screaming Eagle as well. So the only thing is, we when we send an offer on a ultra premium wine, like whether it's Chateau Lafitte, whether it's a Scream Eagle or Scarecrow, all of these collectible wines, it's going to go to a very small pool of, of users. And, and the plus sign is, again, I can go on Vivino, I can select US customers, I can see wh- whoever has ever scanned a first growth Bordeaux, and that's give you right away which what's the right audience for that particular wine. Because you don't want to show mm-hmm. a Chateau Lafitte to someone that's didn't even know that there's wine or above hundred bucks anyway. Is that yeah. a pretty substantial part of your business that it uh, is. like working with partner merchants who are selling wines at that price point? So we are, it's a growing part for sure. When it comes to the offers, meaning that we, we source this particular wine, they always do well. And sometimes when you look at wine like Screaming Eagle, it's, it's not a price issue. It's a matter of like, how can you find enough wines? Because many times, Retailers who offer Screaming Eagles may have one or two six-pack. Actually, it's a three-pack <laughs> available. And for us, we have to have, a, I mean, enough one to justify sending an offer to at least a few hundred people anyway. But it, it is a growing part. And I think that it tells us that we have customers going from the everyday buyer all the way to someone looking for collectible wine. Have you seen, I guess that'll help us kind of transition into the idea of what kind of other trends did you see during 2022? And are you looking in consumption for 2023? Are people, are you thinking they're going to go more affordable this year? Are you thinking, and then I also have a secondary question on the kind of the Portuguese wine note Mm -hmm. got me thinking is, Personally, I've noticed over the five, 10 years of wine consumers pivoting away from being so particular about variety and varietal based wine. So I've heard less, at least among my friends, of, I don't need a Chardonnay, I don't need a Cab. Do you have an interesting red? And they don't really care about the varieties that are in it as long as it tastes. Correct. Are you seeing that? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, the lower the price point and the more people are willing to explore new style, it's a lot easier to, to introduce a... Portuguese white, if you say it for $16.99 versus $30. And and yes, we to answer your first question, I'm expecting to see the average price on Vivino for the bottle to go down this year because, again, we are going through a bit of a financial hard time in the country in terms of inflation and people. The buying power for wine may not be as strong as it may have been at another time. So we are, again, we right now, I'm doing a lot of preparation for importing some, again, French, Italian, Spanish, and Portuguese wines at the below $20 price point, because I know that's going to be a big category for us. In the same time, we still see, um, if the rating is there, we still see a strong demand on our offers for any wines that's got like a 4.3, 4.4 anyway. Yeah. Go ahead, Billy. I was just going to say one thing that's been stuck in my head a little bit for a few years now is the the issues with shipping wine over from overseas here, importing wine, I guess you would call it. The time it takes during the pandemic, it got to be extremely long. Are those lead times getting a little more normal? How long does it take to get wine over here? Yeah, obviously that that became quickly a nightmare last year. We On average, usually you get about, I'm going to select some wines from Europe. I'm going to work with an importer to bring it and 
within 60 to 75 days, I'm going to get the wines landing in either East Coast or West Coast for us. And at the peak of the last year, when there was like no containers available, that was literally twice as long. And one of the issues with this is when you negotiate deals, you obviously negotiate the price and terms. And we got to a situation where our partners, because another thing I forgot to mention, which I should probably mention. So Vivino is a marketing platform. And even though my role is to help to negotiate pricing for our offers, I do it on behalf of our retail merchants. We don't have a, re we don't have a retail license on purpose because mm -hmm. if we did, then we could not market, we couldn't be a marketing company. So when I negotiate wines, I'm negotiating on behalf of a retailer that's agreed for me to negotiate a price for them. But we got to a situation with, with the import process where we had to pay in advance before the wines landed in, in our warehouse. So that was a bit of a challenge. Obviously, knock on wood, but things are things look better this year. The price went down as well because the price of shipping went like it tripled literally. It was stupid. Wow. But in the one thing that saved us was the conversion of euro versus US was also going down. It went as down as 103, I think. Now it's about 110. Historically, it's more like around 1.2. So obviously, if you gain 10% on your conversion rate, that's 10% extra on the cost that you can save. Yeah. And regarding domestic shipping, the new program that Honestly, I guess it's not even wines that are only like domestic, but the program that you now have, the Vivino Pro, or what is this? Oh, the Vivino um, Plus. Vivino Plus. I'm sorry about that. That's really incredible. $5 a month, free shipping yes. on any orders. That, even for me, has been really huge. There have been some wines that I haven't been able to find anywhere else. For instance, I think recently I ordered an English sparkling that I was looking for, and there was like two bottles at a partner merchant on Vivino. And because I had plus, it was, I could just get that one bottle. And like you said, comes in two to three days. I think that's massive. for the So we introduced Vivino plus in the last quarter of 2022. So it's still something very new to us. And again, the idea just to recap for your audience. So you pay $5 every month. It's on a repeat bill and you get your shipping covered regardless of how many bottles you purchase. So you can buy just one bottle of wine for $10 and you're going to get it within two or three days, as you mentioned, and you don't pay shipping. Obviously, the idea behind this is to create some, some customers' loyalty and make them come back and purchase more wines. Another thing with Vino Plus is you also have access to special offers, which are either in advance of our standard customers, or sometimes we don't have enough of that particular product. Therefore, we only make it available to our Vivino Plus members. But Literally at $5, it's, I'm not here to sell you the program, but it's a no-brainer. You, if you, are, you will pay more in shipping than you will by just joining the membership. Yeah, yeah no, I sell it myself to our listeners. It's uh, definitely worthwhile if you purchase yeah, wine but, more than once a month. I'm having a case shipped, for, and I'm, in, I'm on the East Coast, but I'm having a case shipped from California, and it's $60. It's $5 a, bo a bottle yeah. in the case, basically, added to the price. And so the fact that... I can look on here and, oh, my closest merchant is in D.C. and I'm in Baltimore. I know I'm going to get it very quickly. And it makes sense that that deal would be available. It's definitely, it's great for 
yeah. for that kind of customer. This, yeah, this is all I really like hearing your perspective on the markets and like consumer behaviors and things like that. Is there anything else that kind of stands out as we head into this year of just like emerging trends in the category or maybe regions that you're looking to expand more into? I know we talked about bringing in some more imports as part yeah. of the programming, but just anything that you want to wrap up with as that you're looking forward to and those trends in 2023? So definitely more imports for sure. We, and not just from Europe, we also do really well with uh, South American. I was able to find a lot of Argentine and Malbec for a price that's really attractive. And that's another category that does well. And what's interesting about what we do is we, A, we have to follow the trend and that's easy because we have the scans every single day. I can see what people are scanning and it gives me mm-hmm. a trend of, one of the category of one people. And we're we talking of 2 million scans per day. So it's a lot of data. And so I can track and see what style of people scanning. And therefore, by scanning, they're probably interested in that price point, that price, that category of wine. And that's very useful. That's something that nobody has. That data on, on customers is second to none. And what's interesting as well is to see how we can influence the trend as well, because we have such a, a large outreach with our campaigns, our offers, that sometimes we can put specific wines or specific wine regions on the map. Like we will we'll do, as I mentioned, either Portuguese red or a Argentinian Malbec, and suddenly we're going to see the trend on that two categories being like very strong. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I look forward to seeing more wines from, like you said, South America and from many regions that are making wines, even sometimes in a very similar style to what maybe when we talk about the U.S. consumer really likes, but at a really attractive price point, like you said. I think that's great. And another one of our projects for this year is also to to work closely. I'm here in Napa Valley myself and trying to bring as much, aside from the offers we do, to try to connect the dots between our users and the wineries by having their wines available to us any given time because we are we use a couple of fulfillment centers here in, in Napa Valley and we can quickly and efficiently send wines throughout the entire country no problem yeah, we will share a lot more and we'll share some links for folks to be able to find Vivino easily in the show notes and stuff like that and in our introduction with you but really appreciate you coming on to share more about your specific role there, but also some of the really cool things I think that company's doing for consumers that definitely, I think will resonate with our listeners. So we appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. We'll talk again soon. Hopefully maybe at the end of this year and see what trends are happening next. Appreciate your time. Have a a nice day. Thanks for All right. That was our interview with Boris Guillaume. I hope you guys got some insights onto how some of your ratings are produced and maybe a new platform to discover and buy some new wines. But also, I hope you guys are excited for our Tuscan Legends collection that will be coming out tomorrow as a publication of this podcast. And that would be February. I will tell you for sure. February 23rd, 2023. So get excited for this Tuscan Legends. And we are excited to have new collections for you and a new podcast for you next week. Cheers. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. 
For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circulars amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.